Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Therese Gagnon, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies. And today I'm here speaking with Bertil Lindner. Bertil is a journalist and author. Born in Sweden, he has lived permanently in Thailand since 1979. He has worked as the Burma correspondent in the past for Hong Kong-based Far Eastern Economic Review, as well as news outlets in Sweden and Denmark. He is now a full-time correspondent for the Hong Kong-based Asia Pacific Media Services. He's also the author of numerous books on Asian politics and history. And today I'm here to speak with him about his most recent book entitled The Wa of Myanmar and China's Quest for Global Dominance, which was published by Silkworm and by Nias Press in 2021. Welcome, Bertil. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great. So we can go ahead and jump into our conversation. So as listeners may know, Myanmar is a country that is comprised of many different ethnic groups, and several of these groups have their own autonomous or semi-autonomous territories, some of which have never come under full control of the Burmese or Myanmar nation state. So in this context, can you describe for us who are the Wa as a group, and how was it that you first came to work with them? Well, uh, first of all, I have to remember that the Wai live on both sides of the border, in Myanmar or Burma, and in Yunnan, in China as well. The exact number is very difficult to estimate because it's, uh, many of them are mixed with uh, Chinese or Shan, or they become Shan or Chinese by adopting those cultures and languages and, uh, and so on. But I think it would say that, fair to say that maybe got about 300,000 Wai in China, and maybe twice that number in, in, on the other side of the border in Myanmar. But what is very important to remember also is that uh, this is a part of, the, of Myanmar that has never been controlled by any central government. During the British colonial era, my British presence was limited to occasional flag marches up to the Chinese border. When they went up with heavily armed escorts, planting the flag on the Chinese border and saying, this is British territory, don't come any further. Then they withdrew. There was no administration to speak of. And then after independence in 1948, uh, the Wa Hills were ruled by various warlords. Or you just had villages which were, you know, self-governing really, with no central authority above them. It was slightly different on the Chinese side because the Chinese uh, Communist uh, People's Liberation Army moved into that part of Yunnan in the south in the early 1950s mainly because they wanted to seal the border and prevent renegade nationalist Chinese troops, which were based on the Burmese side of the border, from launching raids into China. So they were in China came under some kind of central control in the 1950s. But if you go back to, to, to Burma here, so the first time any kind of central authority was established there was actually when the Communist Party of Burma came across the border from China in the late 60s and early 70s. And they wanted to establish a base area up there from where they were going to push down to the old base areas in central the central parts of the country. And they, they, were get, they got massive Chinese support at that time. Weapons, you know, vehicles, uh, even volunteers who came to fight along, you know, from the Red Guards, who came to fight uh, alongside the, the Communist Party of Burma. And uh, the Burmese military realized at a very early stage that they would not be able to defeat the CPB up in the Northeast, in this, those new base areas, which included the Wai Hills, the Kokang, and some other areas as well, but all along the Chinese border. So they concentrated on wiping out the old 
CPB strongholds in central Burma. And they succeeded in doing that. So by the, in say the late 70s, there was no more communist insurgency in other parts of the country. But it also meant that the Communist Party of Burma, which was led by very old Burman communist intellectuals, became isolated in an area where they, actually, they did not belong, in the Wai Hills and Kokang and so on. And uh, naturally, the Wai and others got tired of fighting or being cannon fodder for an ideology they didn't believe in. They, they knew nothing about, really. They would just, you know, they accepted guns and they would defend their homeland. So there was a mutiny in 1989. And uh, the older leadership of the Communist Party of Burma were driven into exile in China. And they decided the United Wai State Party, the United Wai State Army were born. So then for the first time in history, the Wai got their own central, central authority, you know, governed by themselves and not by anybody else, but still not under any kind of central governmental control. Thank you for sharing that really fascinating history of the relationship between the Wa people and the Communist Party of Burma and the Chinese Communist Party. So I'm curious about the current situation and what the United Wa State Army is like now, which you describe in your book. At one point, you mentioned that the United Wa State Army is currently the largest and best equipped military non-state actor in the Asia-Pacific region, which was quite an interesting aspect of the book. And you focus on the relationship between the WA and China's Belt and Road Initiative in particular. So listeners may be aware that China's Belt and Road Initiative is a massive infrastructural and cultural diplomacy project that's aimed at linking China more closely with much of the rest of the world, including Southeast Asia. So in this context, what is the significance of the United Wa State Army for the Belt and Road Initiative and China's aspirations more broadly? Well, it's very significant because we have to remember also that in, in the past, China wanted to export revolution. These days, they export consumer goods and they're very dependent on foreign trade. And if you look at just at the map of China, it's a huge inland empire with comparatively short coastline for such a big country where the export is the main motor of development. So they need outlets through other countries in order to secure even development between the coastal provinces and the landlocked in, inland provinces so they can export goods even from, uh, from the inland. They can only do that if they open corridors to other countries. And the only country they can provide China with that kind of outlet to, in this case, the Indian Ocean, bypassing the South China Sea, bypassing the very narrow Straits of Malacca, is Myanmar. In the past, this was also where they wanted to export revolution down Southeast Asia by supporting the communist parties in Thailand and Malaya and Malaysia and in Indonesia. But today, of course, it's different. But the, the long-term strategy is more or less the same to control. There's some kind of degree of influence over Burma or Myanmar. And the irony here is, of course, that the United Wasted Army, which has about between twenty and 30,000 troops, is better equipped than the Communist Party of Burma ever was in terms of weaponry. And all these guns are coming from China. But it doesn't mean that China wants to see a new a renewed civil war in the, in this part of the country. Because after the 1989 mutiny, the, the war entered into a ceasefire agreement with the, the Burmese military that we don't fight you if you don't fight us. Leave us alone. We run our own business up here. And uh, of course, uh, the the Y accepted that because they didn't have to fight anymore. And for the Burmese military, which had just then suppressed the pro-democracy uprising in 1988, they had to neutralize as many of the border ethnic border insurgencies as possible to prevent a link up between them and the urban dissidents who were then fleeing to the jungle to take up arms against uh, the junta that was installed in September 1988. So the question is, why do they need all these weapons if they're not going to fight? Well, first of all, to secure the base area to make sure that the Burmese army doesn't change their minds and decide to invade it or attack it. But also it's part of a China's carrot and stick policy towards Myanmar. 
But they realized that they can't just use you know, a carrot and give it all sort of uh, advantages to the Myanmar government and expect that they would uh, return those favors. And it was quite telling that when uh, Myanmar decided to open up in 2011, 2012, there were widespread protests at a Chinese-run copper mine uh, northwest of Mandalay, called Lepadal. And there was a Chinese company was there extracting copper, destroying the environment and old temples and that sort of thing. There was a rather massive popular movement against that. There were demonstrations and speeches were made and so on. And uh, a minister in the then government, which was controlled by the military, Aung Min, he went there to, to Lepadao and he talked to, to the demonstrators and he said, don't make so much noise here. You make the Chinese upset. Then they will arm the communists. Well, with the communists, he, also, he of course meant the war. Well, they're not communists, but they're the successor to the communist army. And he was right. That's exactly what the Chinese can do if they don't get what they want in, in Burma, Myanmar. That is to up the support for groups like the United Way State Army, or I would say especially the United Way State Army, because that's the ethnic army in the country that is the closest to China, much closer than any other group. That's so interesting. So as you've just described, the United Wa State Army has an important, if often little understood, territorial and political role within Myanmar and within the region more broadly. However, I'm curious, what is the relationship like between the United Wa State Army and the Wa people currently? Well, the United Wa State Party is not a democratic institution. <laughs> There's no democracy in the area you control. It's a huge area, but 20,000, 30,000 square kilometers, depending on how you count. It's, it's like a buffer state, an autonomous, de facto independent, really, a buffer state between Myanmar and China. And uh, very few people there speak Burmese, the language. And maybe in the several times, they're hard to find anyone that speaks Burmese. They use Chinese currency, they use uh, Chinese mobile phones, they use, they're hooked up to the Chinese internet, and so on. So they have their own state up there, which is run by themselves for the first time in history. Now, after being ruled by warlords and communists and Burmese communists, because they are now ruling themselves, doesn't mean that they have introduced some kind of democracy in the it is a one-party state, really. United Wa State Party is the only political organization in the area controlled by the United Wa State Army. I don't think anyone would dare to criticize the leadership or anything they are doing. And uh, But it's also a very tribal society where you don't really change authority in the way that you do in Western societies and so on. I would say that the United Wa State Party and Army are firmly in control of the area it controls along the Chinese border, and also some on the Thai border. There are two areas in the north and the south. That's very interesting and definitely has some parallels with other areas of Myanmar that are controlled by ethnic armed organizations. So I'm wondering, um, along those lines, given the complex relationship between numerous ethnic armed organizations and the national government, now the military junta in Myanmar, how does the United Wa State Army fit into this broader landscape of ethnic armed organizations in the country? They're very different from all the other groups, because first of all, their own territory, which is firmly controlled by them. There's no government uh, presence there at all. They built their own roads, their own, you know, governmental buildings and all that sort of thing. I mean, it's quite impressive if you go there. I mean, you realize you don't think you are in, in Myanmar. It's a completely different country. And they also, because of, they don't speak Burmese, they don't speak any other languages there. If it's lingua franca, when I was there in the 1980s, because I spent about half a year with the Communist Party of Burma, in, in the area and with the troops in 1986-87. And that is when I really got to learn the war. They were really nice people. And we had a lot of fun out in the field when I was there with the troops. As you only imagine what they were saying about their leaders, or these white Burmese, they call them. And they, were, they didn't like them at all. So I was not at all surprised when the mutiny happened in 19, 1989. So there's been very little interaction between the war and the other ethnic groups. When I was there, the lingua franca was basically some broken chan, and I speak broken chan too, so I was able to communicate with them. <laughs> uh, today, that's been replaced by Chinese. Chinese is taught in all the schools run 
by the United Way State governmental organization, you can say. And they have actually to do schools all over the area and they teach Chinese, the Chinese language, they teach the Burmese language too. But people are not really that interested in that because it's not useful because nobody else speaks Burmese. Over there. <laughs> but on the other hand, they also aware of the fact that in order to preserve the area and, and to retain control over it, they need to support other ethnic groups in, in the country too, just to make sure that the Burmese army, the Tamadoy, as they call it, doesn't get any crazy ideas and decide to you know, launch an offense against the war. So they have shared their Chinese applied weaponry with a number of other ethnic groups in the country. For instance, uh, Kokang in the north is an ethnic Chinese area, and there was an area also was con- the control of the Communist Party of Burma until the 19. 19- 89 mutiny. Actually, the mutiny began there. And they have their own army, and that army is engaged in a number of very vicious battles with the Myanmar military. And you have, there's another ethnic group in the north, in northern Shan State called Palaung. They got their own army too, the Tahang National Liberation Army. In, among the Shan, there are several armies, but one is called the Shan State Army, run by the Shan State Progress Party. And they all get in the weapons from the war. And in the far north, you got the Kachin Independence Army. It is a more troubled relationship with uh, the Chinese. But nevertheless, they also benefited from uh, the supply of ammunition from the war, which enabled them to launch a very vicious campaign in recent months only, you know, which I've never seen the kind of firepower up in the north for years. So the war playing many games at the same time. And, and it mustn't forget that behind it, the war are, of course, the Chinese, Chinese security services. They're also playing both sides. They're having close relations with the human military and with a number of ethnic groups. But that's the way they can divide and, con- divide and rule and the way they can, you know, use the carrot and stick policy. So you can say that the war have a very complex relationship with other ethnic groups. They're not part of any large alliance or anything like that. They're running their own thing, really. They got informal agreements with a number of groups in northern Myanmar. And they also supported the, the Arakan army, which is active in the southwest near the Bangladesh border. The, the whole leadership of the Arakan army is actually based in Pangsang, which is the headquarters also of the uh, United West State Army and Party. Wow, that is certainly quite quite intriguing to hear about, and especially China's role in uh, facilitating a lot of this. So I'm wondering, building upon what you just shared about the relationship between the United Wa State Army and other ethnic armed organizations within Myanmar, how have these dynamics changed or not in the wake of the February 1st, 2021 coup or coup attempt in Myanmar as the struggle for political legitimacy is ongoing? Well, it hasn't changed that much on the surface. I mean, they were being conspicuously silent about anything over the past few months. They haven't issued any statement in support of the anti-junta movement or against, but there are a number of civil society organizations, mainly based on the various churches, because many of the were actually Christians. They were converted by American missionaries back in the 1930s. And after the 1989 mutiny, Christianity has gone through a kind of revival in the wilds. And now there are churches in many villages up in the wilds, which was not the case under communist rule, of course. And those Christian groups, they've actually urged the United Wildlife Party to say something, you know, support the uprising, support the people. But they haven't done that. There's been no statement at all from the United Wa State Party on the coup or what has happened in the wake of the coup. But on the other hand, the Wa have stepped up the, the supply of weapons to allied ethnic organizations. So they're doing something officially and something unofficially, so to speak. And again, this part of this very careful, cautious double game that they are playing and behind them naturally China 
But China has to think of its long-term interests. They, they cannot just put all the eggs in one basket and support the junta that sees power on the February the 1st. They also have to keep the options open. They, nobody knows going to, what's going to happen in Myanmar next, in a year or two or three. So therefore, it's very good to, you know, have close connections with um, a number of different players in, in Myanmar. And if we look at Chinese foreign policy as a whole, it's very different from the Chinese policies of other countries because they make a distinction between government to government and party to party. It's completely artificial, of course, because the Communist Party controls the government. We cannot really separate the government from the Communist Party in China. But they say that, oh, government to government, we can deal with the military in power in, in Ecuador. Uh, party to party, we can deal with the opposition, the National League for Democracy, which, you know, whose government was ousted in the coup, and also with the various ethnic political parties and organizations, including the armies. So China has this kind of, this kind of flexibility on the part of Chinese foreign policy, which Western countries don't have, because they have to say, yes, we're against the, uh, the junta. But they can't sort of deal with many different players at the same time. And uh, this is also where the war fits very nicely into this picture of how China is expanding the influence, thinking long-term, because they don't really care who is in power in Ecuador. For them, the main th reason is they want to secure what they call the China-Myanmar economic corridor down to the Indian Ocean. That is not a new concept. It was it conceived already back in the 1980s, when the area was still controlled by the Communist Party, but when China's foreign policy was changing from exporting revolution to exporting consumer goods. And the, the first time I came across it was in an article in the Beijing Review in 1985, saying an opening to the Southwest, with a map of Obama at that time, showing the railways and the roads and the waterways and how to reach the Indian Ocean through so Burma's then no, totally underdeveloped infrastructure. But the idea was not new. It started at that time. And then, of course, in the early 90s, after the mutiny, when there was peace along the border, the border trade took off immensely. And one of the first things that the Chinese built on their side of the border, and I was a bit astonished when I saw this rather strange statue or structure right on the border between China and Myanmar up in the north, there was three figures, giants, really, wheeling some kind of circle object between them like this pointing south. And it was like, Southeast Asia, here we come. <laughs> and I did a story for the Far East Economic Review exactly about that at the time. It was in the early 1990s. But the strange thing was, at that time, it was only this monument, this massive monument. And it's surrounded by paddy fields and bamboo huts. If you go to the same place today, there's a big city there with high-rise buildings, where there are trading houses. And every morning before the, the pandemic, and convoys of trucks went south from this place called Diegao down to, to the rest you know, to Myanmar, and even as far as, as, as India or Thailand. This was an outlet, became an outlet for exports, which very few people actually predicted at that time. I remember when I wrote that story, people thought I was a little bit crazy. Why well, well, would China be interested in such a stupid idea? But I wasn't guessing, I wasn't just predicting anything. I based that on what I had read in this article in Beijing Review 1985. And this is, we have to understand China's Myanmar policy too. They're thinking very long-term. It's not only for this year or next year. Great. So to carry that thread a little bit further, I'm wondering about this dynamic that you've described where historically China has seemed to benefit from some political instability and infighting within Myanmar, if we can describe it that way. And I'm wondering if in the wake of the coup, maybe they're feeling a bit nervous, actually, if things are going according to plan, and especially in regards to the Belt and Road Initiative, is the current political crisis in the wake of the coup really quite worrisome, perhaps, to China? Well, it's very easy to dismiss the United States Army as a kind of drug trafficking organization, because in the beginning, most of the income came from opium and heroin. And synthetic drugs like methamphetamines. That's why they built up the empire, really. The economic empire along the border there, which is huge in terms of money. Some money that the CPB never had. 
Well, they, they say that they're just a proxy army of the Chinese. Well, there's some truth in both suggestions. Yes, they, did, they made a lot of money from drugs in the beginning. Now, from my most recent trip up there, which was before the pandemic, of course, it was in 2019, it was my impression that they turned to other more lucrative pursuits like rare earth metals, which they export to China in huge quantities. And that's why they were making their money. So it's a bit more complex than they're saying that there are a bunch of drug runners. And uh, a proxy of China? No, not really. I was amazed. A number of private talks, the discussions I had with the wild leaders and with ordinary Watu, how anti-Chinese they were. I was shocked. I said, what is this? I mean, this goes against everything we know about you, right? But you must remember that when the People's Liberation Army moved into Yunnan in the 1950s, which I mentioned before, they did not treat the war very well. In the beginning, they treated them very well because they needed them as allies in the war against the nationalist Kuomintang. But after their Kuomintang threat had been neutralized, they turned on the war. They burned the drum houses, they burned everything that was you know, left over from the old culture, and they tried to turn them into some kind of Chinese communists. And the war have never forgotten this really. And even today, there's a tendency among many people in China to look at the war and some primitive you know, headhunters Yes, they were headhunters in the past, but you know, not today, naturally. So, I mean, their relationship with China is not as smooth as, as many people think. And I think that, I mean, as long as there is a military government of power in Myanmar, I don't think anything will change. But if, and it's a very big if, there is a change towards a more open society, it wouldn't be that difficult to get the war into the mainstream and get them away from China's influence. They would probably welcome that here. But first, of course, they would have to learn Burmese. <laughs> I mean, it was rather ironic. I was at one of these peace talks in Ecuador in 2017, and a massive war delegation walked in. And they knew waistcoats you know, with a buffalo on the, on the back, which is the symbol. And uh, they sat down and listened to the proceedings. But the only person in the whole war delegation was about 30 people who could understand any Burmese was a Chinese guy, <laughs> one of the old volunteers who had stayed on and uh, become part of the war movement. He could speak you know, Burmese, and he could not. So, I mean, it's not going to be an easy thing. You know, language is a barrier to begin with. And then what to do with the autonomous area up there? You can't really have a state within a state like, like that. It would have to be integrated into some kind of Burmese or Myanmar federation. But that's probably the only way forward. And I don't think it's, it would be that difficult to persuade the, that they, you know, you know, you do belong to Myanmar after all. But uh, looking at the, the situation in Myanmar today, with military rule and where the, the whole country being plunged into civil war, I'm not that, that optimistic about the future. I don't think Burma will get democratic government or a government that even is, you know, vaguely resembles a democracy anytime soon. You will see more of the same civil war, ethnic unrest, and now for the first time in decades, even an insurrection in towns in central Myanmar, like Yangon and Mandalay and so on, Nipido, even in the new capital. Yes, it's certainly been really difficult to watch the news and read the news from Myanmar the past seven months. And I'm also wondering about the double crisis of the coup and also the COVID pandemic at the same time. Do you know how the situation has been and why areas with this double crisis? Well, it's quite interesting you should mention that because the first part of Myanmar where people became vaccinated against COVID-19 was the wilds. And there was the Chinese, Chinese came across, Chinese medics came across and vaccinated everybody because they didn't want COVID to spill over from the rest of the country into, into China, from the rest of Myanmar into China. Because at that time it was really rampant in, in Myanmar and it still is. The Chinese have also done the same thing in the North in Kachin State and there has control of Kachin Independence Army. They are given the vaccines to the Shan State Army so they can use it themselves because they're not really based on the border. At the same time, as they have sent plane loads of vaccines to the military government in Ipido. 
So the chance again playing both sides, so to speak. The wire here is apparently safe now. I mean, I've seen pictures. I know, I've not been there since the pandemic, but I've seen pictures from there, and life there is sort of returned to normal. And it's probably the only part of the country where the situation is even you know, vaguely normal. The rest of the country is falling apart. But the central part of the country, they've been very badly hit by COVID-19. And there the government has shown to be completely incompetent. First, they encourage people to chant Buddhist chants to prevent themselves from getting COVID-19. And then they turn to herbal medicines from the Shan and Kachin states and say, oh, we can use some herbal medicine to, to fight this disease. And of course, this is a complete disaster. And you know, people are dying every day all over the country from COVID-19. Men are being infected. So there's a double crisis there. You've got the escalation of internal political conflicts, you know, voting on insurrection in the, the Burma's heartland and COVID-19. That's certainly a very striking contrast, the picture that you paint between the situation in Wa areas and in central Burma. And so maybe just to see if you have any parting thoughts as we conclude, mm -hmm. but I'm wondering if uh, to put a little bit finer point on it, if you can kind of imagine in the near future, any likely scenarios that might be playing out involving the Wa or more generally post two Well, first of all, I should maybe say that I mentioned that in 1986-87, I spent six months inside the area controlled, then controlled by the Communist Party of Burma. I was out in the field with the troops, and most of them were ethnic Wa, the vast overwhelming majority were ethnic Wa. And that's when I actually got to know them. And as I said, I was not at all surprised when there was a mutiny in 1989. But after the mutiny, when they were heavily involved in the drug trade, which they were, I wrote about them in a way which they did not quite like. You know, they didn't want me to expose it. And they were actually very upset with me because I wrote about the vomit in the drug trade. But then I approached them and told them, look, I mean, I want to come to your area. I want to see what it's like, you know, what has happened since the mutiny, since 1989. And eventually they agreed. I was very surprised, but they did. So I couldn't go there officially from the Chinese side or from the Myanmar side. So I had to go by riverboat up the Mekong River, up to, almost to the Chinese border. So the, beyond areas controlled by uh, the Burmese military or the Myanmar Tamado. And from there, there they were picked me up in a, in a car and we drove to Pangsai, the headquarters. I had walked that distance in, I walked that distance in 1987. It took me two weeks. Now we drove there in seven hours on a new road. <laughs> So this, where I saw what, you know, the first signs of any real development up there. When I met the Wa, the Wa leaders, and I met all of them except Pao Chang, who is you know, the supreme leader, he's suffering from uh, trichinosis and they're not very well. And uh, I was surprised to know how willing they were actually to, to, to tell their side of the story. And I was, of course, willing to listen. And uh, the Wa have their, naturally, their own television station too, Wa State Television. And uh, they, they filmed me, and I wasn't Wa State Television, but I told her that, don't show this until I'm out of this area. I want to be back in Thailand before that. And they did. They waited. But then there was actually the highlight of the news hour that time after I left. And they said, a friend of the white people returns after 32 years. <laughs> but it shows again, I'm not trying to boast or anything, but it shows how open they, they, they can be if you just talk to them, if you just listen to them. And very few, unfortunately, very few people are prepared to do that because it's so easy to dismiss them as drug runners and you know, Chinese proxies and so on. Truth is far more complicated than that. It's much more complex, the whole situation. And I think in, if we look at the future, we have to, that's a word really, uh, it has to change his attitudes towards the war and be more understanding. And uh, if we can influence the government in Nipido, the new government in Nipido, the military government, unfortunately, no, they won't listen to anyone. They listen to themselves only, nobody else. Engagement, forget about it. It's been tried and failed time and again. So again, I'm not that optimistic about the future. I think it will remain as it is today for many years to come, really.
Thank you for those insights. And I'm curious if you have any current projects that you're working on, any upcoming publications that we might keep an eye out for? Well, I write regularly for Asia Times and I write for them about you know, four or five times a month, really. And not only about Myanmar, but also about uh, regional security. And naturally, all these new alliances being, being formed against China have been of specific interest. So I'm actually working on uh, what I hope will be a book eventually about the Belt and Road Initiative and what it means for the region more, you know, the Southeast Asia region or the Indo-Pacific region, as people prefer to call it. So that's, that's what I'm working on. But it will take time because right now everything is kind of stalemate because of the COVID, the pandemic and so on. We don't really know what's going to happen. We have to wait and see. Because I mean, when China launches massive infrastructural project, a Belt and Road Initiative across the world, inventing new Silk Roads all over the place. There was millions or billions of dollars being committed to this, but it all came to a kind of standstill when the pandemic broke out. And today, we don't even know what the Chinese are going to do. They would have to downgrade it, downscale it considerably because it was just too massive when they launched it. It was crazy, to be frank. But the main thing still, the main aim and objectives are still the same. That is to turn China into the world's leading superpower and to surpass the United States. And that's, I think, what the Chinese want to achieve through this massive project and so on. And then it's interesting to see how the rest of the world is reacting to that. So that's the issue I'm working on. So from the kind of um, very small perspective from the Wa <laughs> tribe of you know, tribal people, former headhunters and drug traffickers, to a global perspective, that's what I'm working on, trying to understand more about. Excellent. As an anthropologist, I certainly appreciate the fact that you've tackled this incredibly broad issue through the perspective of a bit more grounded context. I really enjoyed that. And I know that also there's a tremendous amount of interest in the Belt and Road Initiative. So I'm sure your forthcoming book will be, be really eagerly received. And before we go, I'm wondering, do you have any social media accounts where our listeners can follow you? Yes, I'm on Facebook under my name, Bertie Lindner, and also Asia Pacific Media Services. I post links to most of my articles on those social media sites. And uh, Asia Pacific Media Services also has its own website. Just to, it's www.asiapacificms.com. There you will also find the books I've written, uh, papers I have written and so on, and articles naturally. Uh, although I'm a sort of old school journalist, I'm slowly and becoming used to the modern digital world as well. <laughs> I can relate to that as a natural Luddite who's being forced to yeah, yeah. join the digital age as well. So um, thank you so much, Bertel, for speaking with us. And I'm Therese Gagnon. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.